0: For our message, second message today, we have a sermon from Mr. Matthew Steele, it's apparently a multi it's called Sermon on the Mount, part one. Thank you, Reg. Hello, everybody. Hope you're all able to find some seats today. <laughs> it's, uh, it's always interesting, isn't it, in the, the summertime and People traveling, uh, lots of activities, and we we can sometimes have some low numbers, but it's really good to be together. And you can't hear me? Can you hear me now? (laughs) Try not to yell. I don't know about you, but I have a few favorite sermons. And when I say that, I don't mean sermons that I've given. Right. So, uh, Although I do have one of those that is a favorite as well, it's one that I did in Texas like 15 years ago uh, because it was made up by the teen class um, when we were teaching the teens. And the sermon title was called Pizza Tattoos and the End of the World. Because I asked them, what do you want me to talk about? And that's what they, they, uh, they asked me to, to speak about. So. That is a favorite of mine, but what I'm really talking about is sermons that we have listened to from speakers, uh, you know, in the past that have been really influential in our life. You guys had that experience? Anybody? Yeah. And, you know, there may be more than one. Um, I have probably two, and for two different reasons. One is uh, when I was about 11 years old, uh, the culmination of about six or twelve months worth of local outreach and evangelism in the church that I was in at the time. It culminated in a trip to Goodison Park, which is the, the soccer stadium for Everton Football Club. I don't know why they picked Everton, because, I mean, I'm a Liverpool fan. I would have preferred to go to Anfield but still. And we all went there to listen to Billy Graham. And There was something quite amazing about seeing 60,000 people gathered together uh, singing and then, then listening to a message by Billy Graham. And he was an incredible speaker. He was very effective. His message was very simple. Everybody could understand it. And while we may differ in some areas with, perhaps, his doctrine, he changed people's lives for the better. The work that that God did through him absolutely brought people uh, into a better relationship and uh, connection with Jesus Christ, and I, I know that from personal experience. I don't really remember what he talked about, but interestingly enough, I was able to look this morning on his website, and there's an archive, and there is part of his sermon from 1984 from Liverpool, England, at the Goodison Park Stadium, and that's where I was at. So it was kind of neat to go back in time. It's about a 10-minute segment there. But the other sermon, well, it's more in our tradition. It was a sermon given by Mr. Rondart, and it was entitled, A Better World. And that sermon, I think it was given around the time of the 4th of July. I don't remember what year it was. Renee, do you remember what year that was? 1994 because she was in the audience listening to that sermon and then I later was listening to that sermon on the tape program all the way in England and I think by that time I had met the darts right or was about to something like that and then of course I met the darts before I met my wife and so this kind of a interesting backstory and personal connection but that sermon was very profound for me because um, it really was just such a hopeful vision of the future. That there's going to be a better world. There is a new world coming, you kept saying through this sermon. It's better than this. And the reason we know it's going to be better than this, above and beyond God's promises, was that we've all grown up in a world that was better that we know from personal experience that the world can be better. And of course, what Ken touched on a little earlier, we know the world can be better. And so it's still a powerful message to me today, and we listened to it just a month or so ago, uh, again online. So we may have those, those moments, those powerful messages that really changed our heart, changed our thinking. Impacted us and maybe set us on a new path, a different direction. Well, of course, as my title is given away, we have probably the most effective and powerful sermon of all time given by Jesus, as we call it the Sermon on the Mount. and there's just so much in this sermon and. I didn't do a comparison, but I'm pretty sure this sermon is way shorter than my notes today. So I apologize for that. But when you're doing a sermon on a sermon, it, it's supposed to be a bit longer, right? And I don't know if he, he had other things, and Matthew is just recording it in a very succinct way. I don't know if there were some areas that he thought, eh, I'm going to leave that section out. I don't think I would have been that bold. Or was this verbatim? There was this everything that Jesus said in sequence. Who knows? But it is a powerful message. And we've read it so many times, though, that it's sometimes easy to forget that this was radical, this was brand new, and it was delivered in a way that blew people's minds. At the end of the sermon, people are like, what is this? This guy speaks with authority. He, he, he's not like the scribes and the phad- Pharisees and all the Sadducees and all of those guys. He is speaking with absolute authority. But of course, he's de- delivering a sermon on his own book. Right? If you've ever listened to somebody that is, uh, Renee mentioned to me this morning about how she remembered uh, you know, professors in, in college delivering a lesson from their own book, how much more powerful and in touch with the material are they going to be? And that, of course, is what Jesus was doing. So, in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 3, he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are you when they will revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This was blowing people's minds, listening to this. Nothing like this had ever been said before. Think about the context of this. With each one of these phrases, Jesus is giving a deeper, more expansive promise to us that if we are these things, if we allow him to build into us these things, if we allow him to make us peacemakers, if, if we we'll allow him to... to make us humble, to to allow us to, to mourn over what we see in the earth, then each one of these promises is for us. Each one. Think about that. These are individual promises. And up until this time, what did the people that were listening to Jesus have? They had national promises. They had a covenant, or at least they hoped they had a covenant. But they weren't seeing the fruit of that covenant, were they? They were in slavery. They were in bondage. They were controlled by the Roman powers. They didn't have the blessings of that covenant that they had and their ancestors had. So here Jesus is bringing individual, personal promises to us. I don't know if any of you have still been watching the Chosen uh, TV show, but the, the second season, uh, I guess, technically just ended, but you can watch it any time you want. And then the last episode uh, of season two, it's interesting, they chose to use the, the terminology when Jesus is preparing this sermon, they kind of show him preparing the sermon, uh, which I, I don't know if he really needed to prepare a sermon. But they say that this was... Uh, What what do they say? His manifesto. This is his manifesto. And I kind of like that. Because in some ways this is. His manifesto. Imagine listening to this message. Never hearing anything like this before. Being there in the crowd when Jesus was delivering this sermon. It was relatable. It was real. It was touching their hearts. It was... Blowing their minds. And what they heard, they heard, I think, in the depths of their soul. This sermon was a masterpiece of the gospel because it was the, the condensing or the distillation of the law of God into one sermon. And, and Jesus knew this. And he knew what he was about to say could be taken the wrong way. So he says something very clearly in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. He says, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. Why did he say that? He said it because they could think that. Because what he was about to give to them was so radical that they could think that he was trying to replace the law and the prophets. Isn't it funny that people have thought that today, right? They've thought that (laughs) throughout time almost after the establishment of the Roman church. It's like, no, he said, do not think this. And so if we just read what he says, we can understand why he said that and what else he's trying to teach us. Not replacing the law and the prophets. He was trying to insert them into our hearts, our minds, our very being in a way that had never been done before, in a way that couldn't be done before, not as a means of salvation, because that's not possible. The law cannot save us, we are already in debt. We cannot, by any keeping of the law, save ourselves. There is no salvation by keeping the law of ourselves. But we have the law and the prophets for a purpose, for a reason. Jesus gave us this sermon to help show us what that was for, what it was really all about, and how we should use the law of God, the word of God, his statutes, and use that in our life. And that's relevant right now, today, for each one of us. The law of God was and is the revelation and of the nature and of the heart of God. That's what I believe. The law of God has come from him, hasn't it? There was a a moment in time when this law was not written down. It was not codified and documented. But when man came along, and when man sinned, then we needed that law. He needed to write it down and give it to us. And then of course, we see the, the further codification at the relationship and that covenant relationship with, with Israel. God created it from himself. It is the reflection of who he is, his character, his nature. So Jesus said, I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law until it is fulfilled. What do you think this word fulfilled means? Anybody have any suggestions? Established? Established? What else? Well, our traditional kind of look at this word fulfilled is like to, to fill it up, right? To make it to the most possible version of itself. And I don't disagree with that. I think that's that's definitely part of what's going on here. But what gets fulfilled? Go ahead. Everything done that is promised, right? So the law, that implies purpose, right? So the law is written down, given to us, uh, put in our hearts for a purpose. And what's the purpose? The enactment of the law, okay. But what, what else, what, what is our purpose? What was God starting to do in the Garden of Eden? He said, let us make man in our image and after our likeness. Right? Yeah. Right. The purpose of the law, I think, is a tool in God's hands to shape and guide this new creature that we are in Christ Jesus. It's that simple. And to what end? So that when we are finished, when it is complete, when it is fulfilled, the whole purpose of this, (laughs) the whole purpose of the law, the whole purpose of this life experience is so that we will be complete sons and daughters of God, will be the children of God. So, to my mind, when I read this, nothing is going to go away until it's all fulfilled. It is us that is fulfilled. The outcome for which the law was designed is fulfilled. In Psalm 119, David says, Oh, how I love your law. It's my meditation all the day. Well, was that a little exaggeration? Because there were certain times that David obviously was not meditating on the law, right? And we've talked about those things. But that was his heart's desire, to meditate on God's law all the day. You, through your commandments, make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the ancients, because I keep your precepts. I have restrained my feet from evil, from every evil way, that I may keep your word. I have not departed from your judgments, for for you yourself have taught me. And notice, it's it's not just a, a reading of the law, it's not just a practice, it's not just a religious observance of the law, it's God's teaching, it's a partnership, it's God in his life, because he says, you have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I have sworn and confirmed that I will keep your righteous judgments. I am aff- afflicted very much. Revive me, O Lord, according to your word. Accept, I pray, the freewill offerings of my mouth, O Lord, and teach me your judgments. My life is continually in my hand, yet I do not forget your law. The wicked have laid a snare for me, yet I have not strayed from your precepts. Your testimonies I have taken as a heritage forever, for they are the rejoicing of my heart. I have inclined my heart to perform your statutes forever to the very end. And we can want to echo that, right? We can echo that, that we want to, to stay in these precepts and these commandments and these statutes because they make us wiser. They help us make better decisions. And we know to our own detriment when we discard the truth of God, the law of God, and we set it aside and use our own wisdom first, we experience negative outcomes, don't we? in our life. The other day, I purchased some plans to, uh, to build some workshop cabinets. I need, I need more space in my workshop. And my old cabinets, uh, two of them are probably one day going to just come crashing down off the wall, so they, they need to be replaced. So I purchased these plans. haven't had time to, to do the work yet. They're still there. These plans are still there, ready for me to follow. But when I've built all the cabinets that I need, and when I have uh, concluded my work, when the cabinets are all finished, the work that I did by following the plans is is finished, right? And I followed those plans, and the designed outcome. Are following those plans are nice new cabinets that can hold my stuff without falling down. But is the plans complete? Or are the cabinets complete? When I'm done with my work. Are the plans finished? Or are the cabinets finished? The cabinets are finished. And when the cabinets are finished, do I need the plans anymore? Yeah. And it's an interesting concept. And don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that, that the law needs to be done away with or that it will be done away with at any point in the future. But what Jesus is telling us, that nothing is going to be done away with from the law, no jot or tittle, until something is finished. And it is the work that he is doing in us that is finished. When he's finished making us into nice brand new cabinets to hold his spirit, to hold this new life fully in us. So if we were to discard the plans that I have, I haven't printed them out yet so they're on my computer so I could just go delete the plans, right? If I deleted the plans before I started the cabinets, that wouldn't be very wise. But if I'm done with my cabinets, can I delete the plan? Sure. I don't need them anymore. But is everything that went into the cabinets, all the instructions, how to nail it together, how to glue it together, if all of that is in the cabinets, Is the plans really done away with? Are those instructions really gone? Because I think what we get to a place here is when God is finished with us, when all of us are either in his kingdom, we're either converted and we're spirit beings, or we're not, when it's all done, we don't need the plan we will be the plan, Just like he was. Just like he drew this law and this testimony and the statutes, the truth of the world and the nature of existence. He drew it out of himself. We would be able to do the same. When God has completed his work in us, we will be there No more in need of plants. And if perhaps we get involved in a creative process and we come along to a, a planet far in the reaches of the universe and we create new life and they need a set of instructions on how to live so that they can, with us, grow and mature and become like us, and we can draw out those plans again and those commandments of God. In verse 19, Jesus says, Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. What was going through their mind when they read that? So unless our righteousness exceeds the most righteous religious elite, we are toast. Right? Right? Now, maybe it was you know, pretty obvious to them that it was really a low benchmark the, of righteousness for the scribes and Pharisees. But maybe not. I mean, they had all the trappings of holiness, right? And they did all their prayers out in the open and, and everything on the outside. What did Jesus call them? Whited sepulchres. And they looked, they looked good. And I'm supposed to exceed. That, how could I possibly exceed that? Who who could do this? I bet you that's what they're thinking. So, a challenge for them. A challenge for us. Because there's another risk in here, isn't there? That we could become like the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and not exceed their righteousness. You know, human beings, we, we have processes and procedures. I'm a procedures kind of guy. I'm an IT background. If you follow the procedures, the software works, right? The hardware works. You just follow the instructions. Or you deviate from those things, and that's when things break. But we all do this to one reason or one extent or another. Even the most kind of free-spirited or creative of us, we follow a set of repeatable things that we know just works. You put gas in the car, you put air in the tires, you get an oil change every once in a while. Things will work better than if you do all of those in the wrong direction. Follow those instructions, and you can use your view. but there's a danger. We can turn into legalism, can not we? Because following this set of instructions, we can actually turn that, as these Pharisees did, into a God of itself. And that's called legalism. And we have to be very careful that we don't go down that road. And yet... Life is difficult, it's hard, and sometimes we need structure to help us get through. We need a format that is repeatable, and we can know that outcomes are better. And that's okay, that's good. And the law of God is certainly something that can help us that way. Let's just not lie. Then we're trusted, and things go better for us not steal. We don't end up in prison. I mean, it's pretty basic, isn't it? But we've got to exceed that. Because we've been made into these new creatures. And these new creatures that we are, it's not just about a rote following of the law of God. It's about something completely different. Radical, even. It's not self-righteous legalism. It's about being shaped into an individual a creature that is the nature of Jesus Christ what we see in Jesus sermon is earnest desire for us to understand that it is our inner person man or woman that needs to be shaped and changed to be become more like him his first example is in verse 22 he says You have heard that it was said of uh, those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. When does murder actually start? Does murder only start when the individual that's getting murdered is assaulted? That's just the final end result, isn't it? Murder starts with a rage and an anger and a hatred in the heart of the murderer. Jesus is saying, this has got to go a lot deeper than the scribes and the Pharisees. We've got to get much more righteous than them. Even though we may never act on those feelings, on that anger or that rage. There is one person that is always affected by that, isn't there? And that's us. And so this new creature in Christ harboring anger without a cause against a brother or sister is equivalent to murder. Is what Jesus is telling us. And it's kind of interesting, who are we murdering in that situation? Ourself. We're strangling this new creature, aren't we? By harboring these resentments and this hatred that we can have in our heart. And we've all probably experienced this. Jesus is telling us we have to exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees. The Pharisees. Exceed to the, just the, the rote surface following of the commandments of God. Later in Matthew 11, uh, Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, Jesus puts it this way. Because life is a challenge and we need instruction and we need guidance and we need laws and we need help and we need his presence. And all of these things have to come together. And I just... I feel like this this passage connects with this. He says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest to your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And the way I look at this and, and, and how I see it connected to what he's telling us in the Sermon on the Mount, is that we have these Pharisees and the Sadducees and all their purported righteousness and its surface. And it's their works. And it's the things they are doing. And Jesus said, no, we've got to go deeper. You've got to let me shape you through my law. You've got to let me work within you. And that is hard and challenging. We try and do it ourselves. I used to have this idea that as a Christian, I had a certain level of responsibility for my life, and I, I should keep that, work that effort, and do those things right up until the point that here's my limit. And then Jesus takes over from there. Does anybody else have that thought? Right? But the beauty of this passage is, he comes alongside us and he takes off this solitary yoke that's on us. We're trying to pull our life through the muck and the mire. He takes that off and he puts on this double yoke and he is yoked with us. And every step that we take is with him. We're not working our effort and then he takes over. If it's an easy field to plow, he's plowing it with us. If it's tough, if it's stony, if it's a difficult period of our life, and we're plowing that life, he is plowing it with us. It's just a beautiful imagery, isn't it? Of teaming up with us. And he says, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He works with us. He labors with us. He helps shape each and every one of us through the power of his spirit and through the truth and the insight and the knowledge that we can gain from the word of God. Pulling together, working together in this life so that we can learn for him, from him and become more like him. Incorporating his character into ours, into our new creature. Like I say, I used to think I would just do this all by myself to a point, and he would take over. And I am so glad to be rid of that. Because he walks in each and every step with me. Now, someone might say, well, what about the scripture in Philippians chapter 2, and verse 12? It says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, Not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Sounds like something we need to do. We need to work out our own salvation. Is that really what it says? Is that really what Paul is getting at? No, that's wrong because we just read the very next verse. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. So who does the work? God in us, pulling on the yoke together, laboring together in this new Christ life that's in us, this new creature that he is growing us into. And it's interesting. He has to give us two parts. He has to firstly give us the will to even do this. He says, who works in you both to will, to have the will, to have the desire, to grow and change and become more like him. And then, to do it. To want to do it, And then actually do it. Working with us. Laboring with us. It's critical we understand that. That everything that we get. In this Christian life. Is from him. That he called us out of darkness. We didn't find him. He found us. And he gave us this desire. To live with him. To become like him. He is in control. We are not. And then he gives us the ability with him to live in this way. So going back to the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus goes on to talk about, and, and hopefully we can dig into all the different sections, I think is probably my plan. Well, actually, I really didn't have a plan when I, <laughs> for a multi-part when I started this. Uh, I was trying to get through a specific point. I was just like, there's so much preliminary things that, that, that are coming out. I, I, I need to make this uh, probably at least two or three. But Jesus goes on to talk about every facet of human life, all of our relationships, and, and how we should go deeper than the surface reading of the law and how those things affect our behavior and our interaction with one another about relationships, about oaths and contracts and how we should uh, not or, or actually seek justice or equality, what real love looks like and how we should talk to God our Father. So much amazing stuff in here. It talks about fasting. It talks about wealth. Where our desires are. touches on everything that we are all worried about today same things that we worry about today in our modern world he covered 2,000 years ago. And then he turns into something we call judging. And this was really the area I wanted to talk about. <laughs> and of itself, we're going to get into probably two parts of this. turns into to something we call judging. And I would say that it is something that we all have done, isn't it? That we all have judged others. And we've all judged ourselves. And this is of itself a very, very deep area that I hope to get into. But I just want to kind of share a little bit of a a perspective on what I think Jesus might be talking about to uh, maybe take us into the next time we we talk about it. So in Matthew chapter 7, and verse 1, Jesus says, Judge not that you be not judged. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let him rem- remove the speck from your eye and look, a plank is in your own eye. I mean, it's a hilarious description, isn't it? You've got this big beam sticking out of your eyeball and you're, you're going to pluck a speck out of your brother's. No, you're not. You're going to smack him in the head with the beam that's sticking out of your eye. I and mean, that's what's really going to happen. He says, hypocrite. First, remove the plank from your own eye. And then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. And there's just all kinds of interesting ways to think about this. You know, is it a plank in our eye? Because sometimes it seems like it's a plank, doesn't it? When we get something in our eye, and it, it, it's the tiniest little bit of gravel or sand or whatever that is, and it felt like a plank. So that of itself is interesting. But even if it is a plank, what makes us think that we can actually see anything in our brother's eye at all with this plank in our own eye? It distorts our vision. Perspective. And so when we finally remove the plank from our own eye, we might realize that our brother was fine all along. But this is, I think, another scripture that we don't view correctly sometimes. Or certainly, I haven't always understood it this way. Jesus' instruction to us says, judge not that you be not judged. What does he mean by that? What does he mean by that? What process is followed if we judge? Because there seems to be this relationship. If we judge, then we're judged. He's he's just saying this is what happens. What happens in in that process? If we judge, then we are in turn judged. It's interesting over in in Luke chapter 6, talking about the same sermon, He says it a little differently. He says, judge not, and you shall not be judged. Condemn not, and you shall not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. And then he flips to the positive. He says, give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, will be put into your bosom. For with the same measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. So if I was to come along and make a judgment about you, whatever that that judgment may be, if I was to condemn you in some way, and you knew it, right, and I, I made a judgment about why you're behaving a certain way or something that you said, who would condemn me? Who would judge me? In that in that process, you know, if I came to to Ron and said Ron that's an ugly shirt I can't believe you wear that shirt today. it isn't an ugly shirt by the way what's Ron's natural inclination well my shirt's ugly but so is your face Ron wouldn't do that he's not that kind of person. <laughs> and press it down <laughs> right who's doing the judging I I often look at this scripture and think, oh, God's going to get me because I'm judging somebody else, so he's going to come get me. Is that really what's going on? Or are we initiating judgment in others back to ourselves? I mean, I know we're all adults, but that childish behavior really doesn't go away, does it? <laughs> You know, I can see that in my boys. Renee and I, you know, talk about that all the time. That They just push each other's buttons, make judgment calls about each other, and what happens? They just respond in kind. And in fact, even worse, they up the ante. And it just keeps getting bigger and bigger until, you know, we have to get involved or somebody's wailing or something. And that happens with, with us. We make judgments. I don't think it's God that's coming back and then judging us for making those judgments. I think it's each other. Paul says this in Romans chapter 8, verse 1 through 3. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on the account of sin, condemned sin in the flesh. There is no more judgment on us. There's no more condemnation on us in Christ Jesus. So who is doing the judging and the condemnation of us? It's each of us and then also oftentimes of ourselves as well. If I am walking, and if you are walking in the Spirit, it does not mean that we're going to be perfect. We are going to slip and fall as we walk down this path, but we are heading towards that, that goal, that outcome of the work of the law and the work of Jesus shaping us through that law. And his life in us and this new creature that he's making us into. We are walking in that path and we will slip and trip up and pick ourselves back up again and keep walking in that direction. There is no condemnation from God on us when we are doing that. When we are walking in that way. That's the whole purpose of atonement, isn't it? That's the whole purpose of the covering of the Lamb. So who is judging us when we judge. It's the people that we're judging. It's the relationships that we are damaging when we judge one another. That, I think, is what's going on here. We'll be tempted to respond in kind when, when others judge us. Well, then you're so-and-so. Well, yeah, you're so-and-so. And it keeps ratcheting up the temperature and the judgment. Remember what Jesus said in Luke chapter 6, verse 37. And remember that he was saying it in the larger context of the Sermon on the the Mount. It's all about our relationship. Everything in the Sermon on the Mount is about relationship with one another, with God, and what Jesus is doing in our life. He says, judge not, you shall not be judged. Condemn not, and you shall not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. And he said, goes on to say, in good measure, and pressed down, and shaken together, and running over. Who wants that? I want that. I want things to be given to me in abundance. We all do. And I think we love the idea of giving to others in abundance as well. But equally so, if we judge in abundance, then we will be judged with that same level of abundance. And we don't want that. We will be pressed down and shaken together and running over, unfortunately, with condemnation. It is essentially... The golden rule in reverse, isn't it? In Matthew chapter 7 and verse 12, Jesus says, Therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets." If you want people to give you the benefit of the doubt, give them the benefit of the doubt. If you want people to think that you're not ugly, then like the shirt that they're wearing. If you want people to have grace on you, have grace on them. It stands to reason. Well, yeah, but what if they don't have grace on me? Did it hurt you to have grace on them? I mean, that's that whole section where Jesus says, love your enemies, right? He expects us to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees and that surface-level understanding of the law of God. It's his expectation that when he puts this yoke on us and partners up with us, we will be better because he is better. He is bringing into us his nature, his character, and his ability to have mercy and grace on every single person in the planet, either mocking him and watching him die on a tree. He expects us to be the same over time with his help shaping us and crafting us into the very child of God. So, there is more though in this judgment process. There's more than just being uh, reciprocating good for good, or or bad for bad, judgment for judgment, we need to also understand what that does to us when we condemn. Just like when we have anger in our heart toward our brother for no reason, we are murdering that new creature in ourselves. We are judging then that new creature in ourselves as well. There's more that I want to talk about on judgments. I've been uh, doing a lot of study on this. There's a really interesting book that I've been, been using that has uh, been pulling some things out for me that I haven't quite seen before. Some practical ways in which we can control our judgments, control how our responses are to people when they might offend us, do things against us. We need those tools, don't we? Because just the natural tool is to respond in kind. And Jesus says to not do that. So I hoped in the second part, <laughs> at least in the second part, to get into that, because there's a lot of power and a lot of healing that can pr- take place and we can control our ability or our tendency to judge and to condemn. But in closing, I want to turn to the very end of Jesus' sermon. It's a warning and it's an encouragement. And we need to take it seriously. Because as we listen to his sermon, as we study it, we learn from it. There's two things we've got to do, and it goes back similarly to what we talked about earlier—to both have the will, the desire, and then the ability to do it. Matthew, 20, uh, Matthew seven verse twenty-four, Jesus says, "Therefore, whoever hears the saying, these sayings of mine, and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain descended, the floods came." The winds blew and beat on that house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. And that rock is Jesus, isn't it? It's founded on his principles. It's founded on his nature, his character. We're bound with him in this spiritual yoke. And there's two parts that we have to do there. We have to hear what he's saying. Truly listen to what he is saying in this sermon. And then do it. And the hearing is easy. You know, the hearing is so easy. And lots of times we can sit there and we can hear things and we can shake our head in agreement. Yes, that's how it is. And then to walk out and do it is a completely different thing. But Jesus is giving us a serious warning. We have to do both things for our house to be built on the rock. But he says, but everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it fell, and great.